Hey, thanks for joining us, Andy. Good to be here. Good to talk to you, Sean. Whereabouts in the world are you? I live in Brooklyn. That's where I am now. Um, uh, you know, hiding in my in my home as I did through the whole pandemic, writing this book, which is out this week. <laughs> oh well, congratulations on the book. We've got a link to it in the description box, and we've also got links to your socials. How long have you been covering financial matters? Well, you know, I um I I work at Wired magazine now, but previously I worked at Forbes magazine. And even more than financial stuff, I've always been interested in this world of, I cover the world of cybersecurity and hacking and surveillance, and in particular, like the dark web. And, uh, but then these two worlds, as you're describing, like fin the financial world and the dark web world seem to collide in 2011 or so. And I came upon this phenomenon called Bitcoin, which um, I wrote the first print magazine piece about for Forbes in April of 2011. And in that piece, um, you know, being the kind of reporter I am who, who's interested in hackers and and sort of ne'er-do-wells and uh, shady stuff happening on the underworld of the internet, I was interested, unfortunately, not in the notion that Bitcoin would gain in value, but in the ways that it uh, could be used for, you know, for, for crime. And Bitcoin back then, if you remember, was being described as an untraceable anonymous currency. Um, you know, unfortunately, that was my interest. Bitcoin was worth a dollar at the time, and I tried to buy about 40 of them. Uh, for forty dollars, and uh, but there was like a bug in the Mount Cox, oh. the only exchange there was, and I gave up very quickly, and that was a, a very costly mistake, like potentially multi-million dollar lack of persistence on my part. But you know, I, that's that wasn't my interest. I've always been interested in, unfortunately, for better or for worse, the the ways that Bitcoin, you know, is not a kind of better gold than gold or an investment, but in the ways that it's unlocked or it did unlock for the last decade. This whole criminal underworld of, of dark web, you know, transactions like on sites like the Silk Road. Um, but to be clear, my book is actually about the fact that, you know, much to my surprise and to the surprise of so many people using cryptocurrency, and especially criminals, it turns out that it's the opposite, that Bitcoins and many cryptocurrencies can, in fact, be, be traced on their blockchains far better even, far more easily even than traditional financial systems. And that turned out to be like a massive shock and a trap, in fact, for a decade's worth of cyber criminals who thought that they were anonymous and invisible. And in fact, this small group of detectives, the subjects of my book essentially, learned to follow the money on the dark web by tracing cryptocurrency and use that to take down one massive cyber criminal operation after another what each one bigger than the next eventually you know um, billions of dollars in you know takedowns and seizures um that is this kind of you know true crime story that that uh that i've you know just published so you've talked about the rise of bitcoin there and then we saw the proliferation of other cryptos we saw them paying social influencers to push a lot of those cryptos and now we've seen just billions get wiped out. I mean, what when I was working the stock market, it was I think it was the second most financial services was the second most regulated industry after nuclear. This was in America in the 1990s. How has this been allowed to happen? All these scams perpetrated. You know, I the um, I do think that cryptocurrency is just kind of by virtue of being a new thing. Um, enjoyed a decade of under-regulation in a way that uh, has allowed, you know, even seemingly 
good actors like FTX to take and, and then lose billions upon billions of dollars, like, you know, a, a new Enron scale financial disaster. But, you know, the... the I'm, I'm um, sorry, Andy, is, is the notifications going off on your device? Oh, yeah, is that me? Sorry. Yeah, because we could hear it. Yeah, no worries. It's Mastodon, and it's very noisy. Uh, <laughs> it's a nice alternative to, to Twitter, but... Bloop, bloop. Let me see if... I, you know, I think it's also ignoring my my turning off of notifications, so let me turn it <laughs> quickly. Damn thing doesn't want to be turned off. But you know, this, 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 the aside, you know, scams aside, scams have been a huge part of crypto crime. Um, but I've always been interested in theft, like outright theft of bitcoins and um, black markets for drugs and, um, you know, even more important things like child sexual abuse materials that are being sold, bought and sold with cryptocurrency on the dark web. And um, in all of those cases, People thought that they could get away with these things because cryptocurrency was untraceable, and it turned out to be the opposite. And they and um, you know hundreds and hundreds of people were arrested. But to your point about FTX, um, you know, aside from this the the kind of over leveraging or or you know the kind of um, irresponsible investing that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried has done with people's cryptocurrency there also appears to have been just to your point like there has to appears to have been a theft of somewhere around half a billion dollars worth of cryptocurrency from ftx and the same cryptocurrency tracers who are like the main characters of my book are also now following that money and i think are very like very likely will in just you know a matter of days we'll i don't know when we'll find out what the answer is but with um law enforcement's participation i imagine they will follow that money on the blockchain as well and identify the culprit, whether it was an insider embezzling those hundreds of millions of dollars or an actual external hacker who was taking advantage of the chaos of FTX. I mean, that's that is that that money can be seen in real time, like moving. And in fact, one of the transactions that um, enabled it to move, like the transaction fees were paid from an account on the cryptocurrency exchange Kraken. And Kraken is is sort of hinting publicly that they know who whose account that was, and so there's I've had very little doubt that law enforcement already knows who's responsible for that theft or embezzlement or whatever it was. And thanks to this kind of tracing, we may soon see another layer to this FTX story. So, what kind of consequences are the people who ran FTX facing? I mean, I'm sure, um, like if the I imagine that there is uh, a question of fraud for um, actual FTX employees, just as just as there has been for you know um, for like the founders of Theranos, for instance. But but I do think that there is a you know perhaps like an actual felony larceny charge somewhere in here as well for whoever took those coins. Um, I mean that's a much more traditional just kind of bank robbery that has happened and and we may soon see exactly who did it we've had a question Andy, from one of the viewers for you from the psychedelic fish wants to know who owns the crypto companies well they have investment from traditional um the traditional finance world certainly um but you know the but just to be clear like uh, i am uh, not even really like my my interest has never really been these exchanges that sometimes do shady things 
but are not truly criminal in nature. It's been like the people who truly operate on the dark web, like, and have no, you know, kind of um, backers in the in the banking industry or something. I'm talking about like the Silk Road black market for drugs that did hundreds of millions of dollars in in drug deals, or Alpha Bay, the drug and crime market that eventually replaced it and was ten times the size of the Silk Road, doing doing eventually millions of dollars a day in drug transactions before it was torn offline in 2017. And, you know, and its founder was eventually revealed through cryptocurrency tracing to be this like Lamborghini driving $40,000 dinner party, throwing um, young eccentric French Canadian guy living in Bangkok who, you know, so this is not the, um, the Sam, Sam Bankman Freed's, the SBFs of the world are a different kind of, 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 uh, you know, of wrongdoing, if you want to call it that, like, um, they sort of have uh, posed as totally legitimate people. And, and it's unclear whether they'll actually be like convicted of anything criminal, but there is an actual full blown criminal side to the cryptocurrency world that I've always been interested in. And that, and that has flourished for a decade before it, you know, as it turned out, cryptocurrency was revealed surprisingly to be the last thing that you possibly wanted to use as your anonymous crime coin. What happened to the Silk Road guy? Because he was in the news quite a bit. He got a big sentence, didn't he? Is he still? Yeah, he faced, um, he got a double life sentence, Ross Ulbricht. And I, I interviewed Ross under his handle, the Dread Pirate Roberts, when he was still running the Silk Road. And, um, you know, he, uh, you know, I, I have some, some kind of strange sympathy for him because he, in that world, at least had a kind of ideology of um, wanting to, you know, create for better or worse, this world of crypto libertarianism, where it would be possible to totally evade state control and, and end the war on drugs, for instance, by trading in every narcotic possible. And he truly believed in this stuff. He ran like a, a, a book club on the Silk Road user forums, even where he encouraged people to like read anarcho-capitalist stuff. Um, and he, was was busted just a few months after that interview that I did with him and sentenced to two life sentences in prison um, without parole, which he's still serving, has been for more than 10 years now. And, uh, you know, but I think that that was a shocking draconian sentence for essentially, you know, what was a drug crime for the, he was also accused of commissioning murders um, on multiple of his sort of enemies. Um, but they were all, it turned out, scams, or one was a setup by the DEA, in fact. Um, but for the most part, what he was actually charged with and convicted of were nonviolent crimes, and he is nonetheless in, in prison for life. And the judge in his case actually said that that sentence was intended to send a message to anybody who would follow in his footsteps to as a deterrence, you know, and that has entirely failed. I mean, um, he was immediately replaced by... In fact, much more hardened, kind of darker versions of the dark web kingpin who had none of the ideology. Russell Brickt had believed in that kind of victimless crime on the dark web. The people who replaced him were just true criminals. Um, the guy who eventually, as I said, ran Alpha Bay, which, which would grow to be 10 times the size of the Silk Road, was in fact a credit card fraudster and hacker who uh, went by Alpha O2. And launched Alpha Bay to kind of combine the worlds of cybercrime and fraud on the dark web with the worlds of, of drug dealing that Ross Ulbricht had pioneered 
and was incredibly successful in doing that and um and had none of his kind of of ross ulbrich's ethics i would say if you can call it that and were arrests made in that case well that's this that's one of the central stories i've told in the book that um there was a um alexander Kaz was this french canadian guy who was in fact alpha o2 and he in the very first days of um alpha bay being online there was a welcome email that it would send out to users long before anybody knew what alpha bay was or it had grown into the biggest dark web drug and crime market ever um and that the that email included in its metadata his email address pimp alex 91 at hotmail.com and that years later that had been um actually like spotted and recorded by an anonymous dark web researcher who then tipped off the DEA more than two years later in uh, around Thanksgiving of 2016. That was what first puts American law enforcement onto uh, the trail of this guy who they now suspected might be Alpha O2. But it almost seemed too good to be true. You know, I mean, um, that they would get this this tip that just like led right to the to Pimp Alex 91. You know, I mean, it's... Um, that it seemed almost to the prosecutors investigating that case who were who were based in Fresno, by the way, which is not you know typically where these major cases are are um, brought out of in the U.S. It's not the Southern District of New York or Washington D.C. It's like this Central Valley dusty city in in the middle of California, um, and I think that they had almost imposter syndrome about it, like they didn't actually believe their lead at first, and it only was after they used. Uh, a rather like a what was by then um, just becoming kind of a common common tool in law enforcement, um, built by a company called Chainalysis, really the first cryptocurrency tracing startup, um, that they were able to trace the funds of Alexander Kaz um, from like his profits within Alphabet to show on the blockchain that he had pulled out millions of dollars into accounts on cryptocurrency exchanges both in his name and in his wife's name and prove that alpha o2 this mysterious kingpin of alpha bay was this guy uh this french canadian guy living in bangkok and and even then there was this kind of um, very difficult question of how to capture him because he used encryption on his laptop so they knew that if he just closed the lid of it they would never get the evidence that they needed to convict him he was smart enough he learned from ross ulbricht who was arrested in a public library and his laptop was snatched out of his hands, logged into Silk Road. He had learned from Ross Ulbricht that you need to, to only work on your dark website from in your own home um, so that you know somebody would have to get into the room with you and grab your laptop open and logged in to really capture you. Otherwise, if you can just close the lid, those secrets are encrypted in a way where law enforcement will never be able to get them. And this is in Bangkok. So um, the, the sting operation to capture him it was like one of the most, I don't know, like um, elaborate and dramatic law enforcement operations I've ever encountered or described in reporting. Could you give us the details of that? Yeah, sure. So, um, so let's see. Um, on the day of July fifth, twenty seventeen, when they when they had identified him, um, and they knew that they had their guy through cryptocurrency tracing, there was actually like. Uh, there were more than half a dozen. They they had coordinated with the Thai police, and it turns out that Thailand is an extremely friendly country with the DEA, as you may know. And I, I didn't know that, but there, it's the furthest thing from a you know offshore non extradition country. The Thai police were extremely cooperative and and really good at what they did here. They um they had 
half a dozen undercover agents, all sort of in different roles outside of Kaz's home, the, their target, um, on this one block on the outskirts of the of Bangkok, this kind of quiet cul-de-sac. And one of them was like pretending to be an electrician working on a telephone pole. One was pretending to be a gardener. There was a couple who was pretending to be this, this real estate um, shopping couple in a house across the street. And um, while well, one of them distracted the real estate agent, the other one like got up to the top floor and was like doing surveillance on his house. And it was all extremely elaborate. And then another couple of female undercover agents uh, pretended to have driven their Toyota Camry into the cul-de-sac and taken a wrong turn and had to turn around. And as they did this, they crashed their car into his front gate. Um, to wow. cause his front gate. So the idea, of course, was to, to distract him and um, pull him down somehow, get him out of his bedroom. They'd got the whole layout of his house. They knew exactly, like they thought where he was working anyway, um, and where the laptop would be. By the way, um, another part of the story is that Alexander Kaz was a just obsessive pickup artist and philanderer, womanizer, who also posted constantly to this pickup artist forum called Rouge V. Um, and he sort of live blogged his whole extremely prolific sex life and um and he was married but he you know would pick up women in his lamborghini and just like and then he would immediately post about it on this pickup artist forum and so they they figured this out the the this very this actually like eventually like a six country um combined law enforcement investigation they found his his posts under a different pseudonym on this site and so they could track him in real time and see when he was on this forum and thus when he was logged in, when he was, when his laptop was open. And so they could see at this moment that he was logged, that he was on his computer, that the lid of his laptop would be open. They crashed the car. Um, his wife comes down instead of him. And so the, this female undercover agent drive behind the wheel gets out and like does this whole play acting thing where she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Could you please have your husband come down so we can assess the damage to the gates? And I'd I would like to pay for this. Like, I don't want to pay for it in my next life," she said. She was Buddhist and in Thailand, and um, his his wife was Buddhist as well, as Thai as, as well. And it works. And um, she, you know, she yells up the wife yells up to Kaz to come down. He emerges in his like gym shorts, no shoes, no shirt, and um, starts like pulling on the gate. The 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 driver of the you know, in quotes of the real estate shopping couple's car comes out. He's an undercover agent and. Sort of pretends to be helping him with the gate and and at that moment another undercover agent who was hiding in the back of that car comes out of the back seat and sort of walks slightly behind the cause and i think now they had enough people present that they're ready to to for the takedown essentially and cause like looks to his left and he sees that one the guy who was the elect electrician is now in a police vest and sprinting towards him cause goes into like fight or flight mode he spins around but then like one cop grabs him and then another and they're wrestling with him and then the one who was hidden in the back seat sort of pulls free <clears throat> runs through the gate which has been you know busted open and up the stairs where you know he's actually like practiced this layout of the house and tries to, he thinks, he, he goes into what he thinks is the home office. He, it turns out to be like the guest bedroom because had two Canadian friends staying with him and he like, they're asleep. And he's like, oh, sorry, sorry. And he turns around, runs into the master bedroom and finds that the laptop is there and it is open, logged into Alpha Bay and um, causes arrested. 
there's a whole other story that I won't get into of, of how they had to get his um, his phone unlocked as well, which is that they actually like trick him into thinking that he's being arrested um, in a kind of uh, a kind of like Thai bribery scheme that like the the husband of one of the women he was sleeping with is like has uh, got corrupt cops onto him and. And they get him to unlock his phone so that no! the, the, the husband. Um, I guess I am getting into it, but then um, that all happens on on the spot, like in the scene, just minutes later. Uh, so they get his phone unlocked as well. They get his laptop. Um, he is brought into Thai jail, and sadly, a week later, uh, is found uh, asphyxiated, dead. What in his cell? And to this day. You know, I have not, you know, of course, Thai law enforcement, U.S. law enforcement says that he committed suicide. Uh, I was not able to, I mean, his, his, his mother, his defense attorney both say, of course, that he was murdered. And I have not been able to prove this either way, despite going as far as like, you know, meeting his jailers in the, in the jail in Bangkok and seeing the cell he was in, seeing that there were cameras there, getting the surveillance footage of the last moments of his life but there as there always seems to be there was a gap in this footage and i can't conclusively you know say either way what happened who did the autopsy the ties uh and i did get the coroner's report as well and from them and um or not from them directly i shouldn't say but like i got the coroner's report and uh and uh, you know, it says that there's no signs of a struggle, nobody else's DNA on the fingernails, but we know what does that mean? Like you, um, if, of course, if the, if, if in the theory of the defense attorney or his mother, the Thai police were involved, then you know, who knows what you can actually trust here. And I, I don't want to cast any aspersions. The Thai cops that I met who were involved in this case seemed extremely upstanding and really good at their jobs. Um, but, uh, you know, the, if you're just to, Play devil's advocate um the theories about cause could are that you know he was in cahoots with someone else um in thailand who paid cops to have him killed or he uh or maybe he was you know the cops themselves some of them were on the take to protect him and murdered him had him murdered to cover it up who knows i i don't i'm not saying any of those are my theories i um but you know you just objectively you have to consider all of these things and um I, I don't know what to believe. I, you know, the, the investigators who I spent so much time with to write this book believe very sincerely. And I don't think um, that anyone in the U S wanted to have him killed. They believe very sincerely that he was, that he committed suicide. And, um, you know, that is probably the simplest explanation, but I, it's just hard to prove either way. Let's ask the viewers, put one in the chat. If you think that he was suicided, Put a two in the chat if you think that he was not suicided. Let us know, and we will monitor that shortly. Because it is, we've got a, a comment here from Regina. It is easy to bribe a coroner. Yeah, so we've, as, we've, as we've seen in Arkansas, um, Fami Malik, you could basically get your verdict to order <laughs> all right so ones 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 two two mostly ones mostly ones so earlier on you know you said silk road goes down an entity 10 times bigger springs up did that happen again not really and in part because this alpha bay 
takedown. Um, there's even more to it than I have just described. There, it was part of something called Operation Bayonet, which was this combined operation with those six law enforcement agencies around the world that I just talked about, but then also um, the Dutch police simultaneously. And this is where, in terms of like dark web investigation, it gets really wild. At the same time that Alpha Bay was torn offline and Alpha O2, the kingpin of that site, was arrested and, and died, um, the Dutch police coordinated with all of this to take over the second biggest dark web site called Hansa. So they didn't, didn't merely take it down. They, they took it down. They, they, they took it over. So they were running it undercover. They, they arrested the administrators and became the administrators of this dark web drug market um, and ran the whole thing in secret and actually turned Hansa, the second biggest dark web market, into a kind of surveillance trap so that when Alpha Bay was pulled offline in that first operation I was describing, all of its thousands of users flooded into Hansa, including all of its drug dealers, like the you know the top drug dealers on the dark web, and many thousands of them were identified in this uh, by the Dutch police, who set you know so who re who changed the code of the site. Of course, dark web markets aren't supposed to know anything about their users, but if you sabotage them and change all the code, then you can secretly start to surveil people, which is exactly what they did, and that led to hundreds and hundreds of arrests around the world, and the dark web. You know, some people would argue that it has recovered. I, I um, by the measurements of Chainalysis, that company that I was just talking about that does cryptocurrency tracing, um, no dark web market has ever become as big again as Alpha Bay. But the, but that is, you know, but the story in the story of the book, there is yet another case, the one that follows Alpha Bay, that is even bigger on in a different sense. And as I was saying, like there is a the darkest of the dark web. I would argue is this world of child exploitation. And some of the same investigators who worked on the Alpha Bay case then went on to, to take on this, this dark web market called Welcome to Video that was selling child abuse videos. Mm. And through cryptocurrency tracing alone, they, they identified hundreds of men who were uploaders, downloaders, hands-on abusers of children. Uh, through cryptocurrency tracing, they identified these men and arrested 337 of them around the world. Good. 23 children were rescued. I mean, this is the, in terms of monetary value, this was not the biggest operation, but in terms of the human impact, I would say it is one of the, if not the biggest dark web uh, case of all time. And, and, uh, and it was all done through the fact that these people believed that the abhorrent stuff they were doing was protected by the anonymity of cryptocurrency. And in fact, they were, they were doing it all out in the open, unbeknownst to them. I mean, the, the kind of drama, the, the dramatic irony is just like so thick. Glad they got caught. But the sad thing is they probably didn't get very large sentences, which is something that the justice system needs to take a look at. We've only got three minutes left, Andy. It's been fascinating so far. Can you tell us about meeting Snowden? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, um, I don't know if I'm, all, I guess, let's see. I can, I guess I can say that I've met Snowden, but that was an off the record meeting, uh, when I met him in person. So we can't, I can't talk about what he said there, but I can, uh, I've met Snowden virtually through, he likes, you know, he, he of course is in Moscow and he like sets up his own kind of encrypted video chat with you when he wants to talk. And, um, I've interviewed him a few times in that way. Um, both about like his his life and um, his you know the very like difficult crazy decisions that he's made over his interesting career 
and um, and about his work at the Freedom of the Press Foundation, which he he now helps to run. That is sort of his his new job. I'm not sure people are aware of that, but he now kind of works at this public interest um, group that is designed to to try to, in his case, create cryptographic tools to protect journalists. Does he have a path to ever going back to America, or is that a complete no no? I don't know. I mean, you know, he he of course sought us a, a part in. Um, several times um i don't think that either the kind of centrist democrats or of course the trump administration will ever uh forgive him i mean he's they have both in their own ways you know called for him to be jailed for life or or executed i mean um crazy things like from each party in their own at their own times so um no, I don't know what Snowden's future holds. And unfortunately, like I, I do feel for him because to be stuck in Russia means something different than it used to be. And as like someone who has closely followed, my last book was about the, the cyber war that Russia has waged in Ukraine. And so I'm very aware of the uh, the plight of Ukraine and, and the ways that Russia has been rightfully isolated and pushed into a corner for its abhorrence. Like, I mean, it's truly brutal invasion of Ukraine. And... Snowden is now trapped there, and I do feel for him. I think he's a, a principled guy. Don't you think that the invasion of Ukraine has um, probably reduced his chances of being handed back to America in some sneaky deal with the Russians? I think so. I mean, there's no, um, I don't know. Uh, certainly, he's not somebody who I imagine the White House is going to be bargaining for to, to get back of all, you know, um, like when there are, there is like Paul Whelan and, and Brittany Griner, if I remember her name correctly, the, you know, these political prisoners, essentially Americans in Russia, I'm sure that there are British political prisoners too. Um, and um, they will be no doubt like a higher priority in the minds of anybody in the current administration. If there can be any negotiation with Russia at all. Andy, please, we've got your links in the description box, but can you please just tell the viewers also where they can find you and support you and get your book? Well, yeah, thanks so much. I mean, the book is called Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. And I just encourage people to, to Google that. And, and as you can find it, you know, in the usual places. And um, and I work for Wired Magazine, and I can be found, you know, pretty easily at wired.com too. Absolutely fascinating, Andy, especially the uh, Thai, the arrest in Thailand. I was mesmerized by that. Really appreciate you spending time with us today. You have a great rest of your day. Thanks very much, Sean. Good to talk Thank to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was really interesting, wasn't it? The especially the Thai arrest, how they pretended, <laughs> how sneaky they are. You know, from having David Macmillan on the channel multiple times talking about the Thais working with the DA, how he ended up with the death penalty over the. We know quite well about the relations of the DA and the Thai authorities. And how many people end up near execution for drug offenses over there as well. Don't mess around in Thailand, folks. All right. Here is Andrew. And I am going Sean's to... Sean's advice of the day. <laughs> Don't mess around in Thailand, folks. Yeah. Good to remove yeah. myself from the stream. Cool. I'm going to add... Oh, Jim's already here. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Andrew? Nice to talk to you again. 
Okay, good to talk to you. I was going to say, do you remember when you had me on your podcast? I sure did. I sure did. I got the uh, note from your producer that you were going to be doing the interview. And I said, oh, I know, Andrew. So good to speak with you. Oh, it was good. That was all about exorcism. And we were on your podcast. Tell me a bit. Have you got like, what is it two? or th How many podcasts do you have different podcasts? Well, I actually kind of lose count. Uh, <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have two primary ones that I do, two that I produce. Uh, and, and then I have a few premium podcasts, but the two main shows I do are Jim Harold's Campfire and the Paranormal Podcast. The Paranormal Podcast I've been doing since 05, and that's basically me interviewing people about the supernatural, UFOs, ghosts, cryptid creatures, whatever it might be. And then Jim Harold's Campfire, which is probably my most popular, and that's just where regular folks call in and they share strange things that have happened to them. And boy, there are a lot of them. A lot of strange things have happened to a lot of people over the years. And it's my honor to get to field some of those calls. What first got you into the paranormal? And I want to ask a double question here, because what, what, what is it that gets us all into the paranormal while we're all attracted to it? Well, um, I'll, I'll start with the general, then to the specific. I, I think that the reason that most people have some, at least some passing interest in this, even people who consider themselves skeptics, which I'm cool with, hey, whatever floats your boat. Um, but I think that it's because we all sense there's something more than just what is seen, that there is a great unseen. And I always say almost everybody has had some kind of experience. You know, I'll talk to somebody and I'll say, I do this show called Campfire. It's about uh, spooky stuff. And people call in and they're like, I don't believe in any of this stuff. But let me tell you about this one story that happened to me. And then they proceed to tell their story. Um, so I just think it's part of the human condition. Why do we... You know, why do we turn our heads when there's a car wreck? That's not a nice thing to do. It's kind of human nature. Why do we like roller coasters? We like to be scared. Why do we like the paranormal? Because we sense there's something more. For me, it goes back to when I was a very, very, very young child. I must stress that. Back in the 70s, uh, going to grade school, I watched a show called In Search Of by Leonard Nimoy. And he talked about all these different uh, mysteries. And it really started there. It, it never stopped. I ended up working in broadcasting behind the scenes in the business side. I always wanted to get in front of the mic because that's what I'd gone to school for. 2005, I said, I want to do a podcast. I heard about this new thing. What am I going to do it on? Well, what fascinates me and I don't see out there? And it was the paranormal and it's kind of off to the races since then. Wow. Do you have moments of, of doubt? Are you uh, <clears throat> ever uncertain? I may be uncertain about one specific thing, for example. Like I might one day say, well, UFOs, ah, oh, they're probably just military experiments or they're just hoaxers or whatever it might be. But I always come to that place where I think there's something to it. So in general, I may periodically be a little skeptical about one particular thing, depending on my mood. Uh, but overall, I believe something is going on. Now, I'll give you one that I'm kind of skeptical about. Uh, we talk about Bigfoot, and it's one of those that kind of, Andrew, it depends on the day. You know, I hmm. I kind of believe that there is such a thing as Bigfoot on one day when I look at that film from 1967, the Patterson-Gimlin film, and they've done great work stabilizing that. It's like, boy, that looks like a person. Then the next day you'll ask me, and I'll say, well, they've never found a body. They've never found DNA. So maybe there isn't such a thing as Bigfoot. So I waver a little bit, but in general, doing these shows has increased my belief, not faith, but belief that there is 
more to life. Uh, now, what that is, I'm actually more confused than ever, but I do believe there is something going on, most decidedly. And when people call in, how do you, do you believe most of them, most of the stories, and, and what kind of stories are people telling? Well, I will say this. I believe that the vast majority of people are being sincere. You can occasionally tell when people are pulling your leg, you know, uh, and uh, a few of those stories we haven't aired. But I air the vast majority of stories because I do believe the vast majority of people are being very sincere. Now, does that mean that every drippy faucet is a ghost or every, you know, uh, like paranormal investigators, which I am not one, I never claim to be, carry around EMF meters? Well, maybe sometimes that's just bad electrical. Maybe it's not mm. picking up on, <laughs> on a ghost. So uh, I like to keep an open mind, uh, not so my brains fall out. But in general, I come from a place of belief on the show. And I also try to be very supportive of our guests who tell their stories um, in the sense that they're being very vulnerable. They're mm. saying that we are going to tell a story. And I think you you should be understanding and you've invited them in to share their story. I'm not going to do a, uh, uh, you know, uh, American journalist, Mike Wallace type thing on him where I'm kind of, you know, peppering them with uh, kind of cross examination. Yeah. Uh, so I try to be very accepting of their stories. And for the vast majority, I believe they have experienced them. And in some, I really believe they've experienced something. Now, in terms of the types of stories, there's everything from shadow people, which I hear a lot of doppelgangers I'm hearing a lot oh. of these days, which I never realized that was a paranormal thing, but it appears to happen to people. I've had ghosts, of course, UFO sightings, cryptid sightings. So really, it kind of spans the, the gamut. And there's always something new and something I haven't heard before, even after doing that show for the last 13 years. Uh, and hearing thousands of stories, there's always something new, like, oh, I haven't heard one like that. Do you, um, I, I suppose actually what you're saying is why you're such a successful presenter, because you have a, a healthy dose of skepticism, that people feel like they're in good hands with you, that you're going to sort of look at things, but you're also, you're not going to uh, make people feel bad about what they might come out with, and uh, you're going to accept uh, accept them. Um, do, do you have the notion of um, eyes open and eyes closed? I remember I was speaking to somebody who was investigating psychics, and they said some psychics well, this person didn't believe in, in psychic ability. So they said, psychics are the eyes open. That means that they know that they are fooling people uh, or eyes closed. They don't realize. Or, or, or that. So, so, so sometimes when people call you, you know, you're saying you're not sure if, you know, I mean, it seems like they believe they've seen it, but, may, but maybe, they, maybe they didn't sort of a trick of the light or something. Well, I think that's always a possibility that somebody's mistaken. Um, I'm not there for the stories. I mean, I'm not there when the stories occur. I didn't see what they see. I rely on their, their description of it. But many of these things I absolutely believe in 100%. People talk about getting messages from loved ones. I believe that is a real thing. Ghosts, I believe that's a real thing. Now there's a question if that is, you know, the when you see, for example, uh, an apparition of sorts, is that some kind of energetic imprint on the, the the place is that sentient i don't know the answer to that but i do believe they do exist now it's always possible somebody is mistaken but as i said i think the vast majority of people are sincere so it's one of those things where for the great 
majority of people, I don't believe they're calling in and saying, oh, let's pull one on Jim and the audience. I believe they've experienced something. And I think many times they have. Yeah. Uh, There are parts now, I mean, as we get more into science and uh, quantum mechanics and simulation theory, I think you've spoken about before, Mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, science and the paranormal can coexist is that is that an area of interest for you very much so because i make this point andrew you know first of all people will say you believe in this stuff and you don't respect science nothing could be further from the truth i mean you're a journalist you know back in the day you know in the 1980s in america we had a show called nightline where they did something very similar to this and it took a satellite and it took a crew of 500 people or how many people to now we're doing it over the internet boom 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 very easy, very simple. Point is, is that that's because of science. Whether you're talking about medical developments, that's because of science. So there couldn't be a greater respecter of science than me. But I do think sometimes mainstream scientists, like in other fields of endeavor, have blind spots. And they're locked into their way of thinking about something. And they say, no, it can't be, it just can't be. And I think that's wrong. I, I, I think whether you're talking about religion, politics, science, philosophy, wherever people get locked into their beliefs and their, they filter things out that don't fit, you know, straight down the line. And I think that does happen with science sometimes. But I am glad to see that there are people who are trying to bridge that gap. And maybe the scientists need to become a little more open-minded. Maybe the true believers need to become a little bit more skeptical and maybe we can meet somewhere in the middle. I got to interview um, Dr. Michael Shermer, Oh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Awesome. He was an awesome guy. I enjoyed speaking with him. And one thing I appreciated Mm -hmm. about him is, you know, he wasn't saying you're stupid. We were disagreeing, but he was being very, um, you know, gentlemanly about it. So I, I really appreciated that. But the thing he said was, and this is what I didn't get. He said something, this is paraphrasing, but he said, you know, I said, well, Dr. Shermer, we may agree in many cases. You know, for example, UFOs. There might be many times there's unfortunately hoaxers. Sometimes, of course, it's military uh, experimentation, of course. And then other times it's people looking up the sky and seeing a planet or a star and mistaking it for something. I agree. And that may even be the majority of cases. But what about that few percent where we can't explain any of that? And it's still open and we can't figure out what it is because all of those things have been pretty much ruled out. He said, well, we know that exists, but we just put that up on the shelf. And I'm like, what? (laughs) We need to take that down off the shelf and examine (laughs) that sort of thing. So that's what I'm saying. I mean, I think there's room for people of goodwill, both more on the skeptical side and more on the belief side to try to meet in the middle to try to figure some of these things out. Mm, you wouldn't probably have uh, such a good conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson. No, I saw... no, I thought about that. He would just, <laughs> and probably would succeed. He's excellent at what he does. He's uh, an excellent debunker. He's very good verbally with what he does. Uh, I got frustrated but, by him. I got Go on, sorry. He, uh, well, he, I'm sorry. He's tremendously intelligent. There's no one I think that can debate that. He's extremely well-spoken. Uh, he's a great, TV personality and TV presenter, but his mind's totally closed, period. Mm. And it's like, I believe what I believe and you're wrong because of science. And I can always say I'm right a hundred times because science. And 
you know, but he I talks d- nonsense as well. He goes yeah. off science. He goes completely off piece. I don't usually criticize people sort of publicly on this, but he really wound me up watching him on Rogan and on Michael Shermer because because he said to Michael Shermer, whereas you said that Michael Shermer was disagreeing with you but was very gracious and and pl- he said to when he disagreed with Michael Shermer, he said uh, you're an old man on a porch right now, and he was just ad hominem attacks. And there's yeah. a great book um, by David Robson, a writer, a British writer called David Robson, called The Intelligence Trap about how um, how more intelligent people are actually more likely to uh, go off on the wrong track because they're so intelligent that they're able to use their minds to convince themselves of certain routes and things you know so they're really they've really taken the the the, um, the the perfect example was Arthur Conan Doyle who wrote uh, Sherlock Holmes who believed in fairies and he believed in fairies because mm-hmm. uh, some people had some kids had done like a fake right. thing they posted a Coddington was the Coddington theories, uh, am I remembering correctly? It might correctly? have been, yeah. might have been that, yeah. yeah. So I totally agree with you that sometimes the most intelligent people, the most, I mean, the real intelligence, I guess, is being able to step back and say, we don't know anything. But what do we know, Jim, about Skinwalker Ranch? That's my segue into Skinwalker Ranch. You know, I am not the uh, expert on that, but I did an excellent uh, discussion, not because of me, but because of him. I spoke to Colin uh, Kelleher about it, who did a book with uh, George Knapp. And, uh, you know, the, the, the idea is that people were doing, um, were doing research at Skinwalker Ranch, and then they would come back to their homes and they would see paranormal activity at their homes. And, um, and that's just one of the strange things that happened around Skinwalker Ranch. And, and to me, that kind of thing hints at the idea that there might be this Kind of like I used to, when I used to watch that show in search of, I used to think, okay, UFOs are aliens. Ghosts are dead people. Bigfoot is an animal. You know, very siloed kind of thinking. And a place where Skinwalker Ranch, where you see the coincidence of these kind of things, UFO sightings, people having this hitchhiker effect, they're doing research there, they come back home, (laughs) them and their family both start seeing paranormal visions. Maybe... There's a couple things at play here. Sometimes I wonder if you look at the work of John Keel and people like that, there might be a trickster element to all of this, a trickster element to the supernatural. You know, the old thing, if you look into the abyss, it looks back and and that something's messing with us. Right. And the other idea that these things may be connected. Now, this sounds really out there, but Stan Gordon in the American state of Pennsylvania has done a lot of research on the coincidence of Bigfoot sightings where there are UFOs. Now, that doesn't, on the face of it, make a lot of, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But I do wonder if there's some interplay about these different kind of silos of activity that are somehow linked together in Skimwalker Ranch is uh, a possible, uh, possible example of that. I wonder, again, just my sort of skeptical mind, if that might just be to do with, you know, I, I suppose there are more UFO spottings in the countryside, pro rata, no, just where there's less. Is that, that's is that fair. fair? No, I yeah. think that's fair as a possibility. I'm not saying it's correct, but I think that's fair as a possibility. And I think you almost have to be, I think even if you, even if you're default, because if you look at me, for example, I am probably, let's say that I'm a petrol gauge. I'm a gas gauge. I'm about three quarters full for belief. Okay. I'm not over on the one side where I believe everything, but I, in general, I lean towards belief, but sometimes you got to step back and say, you know, Andrew's got a good point. That makes all the sense in the world. I think that's what we need to do on both sides. 
Mm, I think so too. To explain to just any viewers who don't know about um, Skinwalker Ranch, what what is it that's so scary about it, and what is it that that uh, that has taken the imagination so much? Well, I think it's because it's this place where just weird things start to happen. These UFO sightings, these cryptid sightings, all these different things, and these are the kind of vortexes that get people's. Uh, uh, juices flowing, um, uh, you know, thoughts about government experimentation and those kind of things and speculation along those lines. Um, I had an interesting conversation with uh, Bill Burns, William Burns, who used to do a, a TV show for the History Channel. And it was all about UFOs. I can't recall the name of it. But he told me he dug into Dulcy Base which uh, has a lot of weird undertones of possible experimentation and those kind of things. And he claimed, um, he claimed that actually his show was taken off the air after he delved into Dulcie Base. <laughs> oh um, that was his claim, not mine. That's, that's what he said. So, I mean, I think it's really interesting. I tend not to be a conspiratorial person, but... You know, there's some thought that uh, our government may be covering up more than they actually, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, they know a lot more than, than they're letting on. So uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to think about. It's interesting to think about how these things could work along with the government. Is the government involved in these things, so forth and so on? Yeah, it's a tough one then, isn't it? Because then is it, it, are we talking paranormal? Are we talking government conspiracy? Or are we talking some sort of science quantum thing going on at the ranch, you know? Yeah, I actually had, um, I spoke to Jesse Marcel Jr., whose father, mm -hmm. Jesse Marcel Sr., was the person who was one of the first military people on scene at the Roswell crash. And Jesse Marcel Jr. served, he's passed since, but he served in multiple um branches of the U.S. military. He was uh, a physician, by all accounts, a very kind of stand-up guy who told me that he had been ushered down into the bowels of like underground D.C. in the Capitol and told that there was a shadow government. Now, again, he would strike me as the kind of guy I would believe I'm not a conspiracy guy, so I have a lot of time, a uh, hard time believing that there's a shadow government, but it does give one pause. It does make one think. Yeah, it's exciting to think about, I think. And we have to be conspiratorial. As, as Michael, it was Michael Shermer who said to me, uh, in, in the tribes that we grew up in, as we evolved in, uh, if you heard a rustling in a bush, if you were conspiratorial, you were more likely to survive and pass on your genes or your culture or whatever, because you'd think it might be a snake. If you're not conspiratorial minded, you'd be like, oh, that's the wind. The wind's always there. <laughs> and, you know, then the snake gets you. That's so, a good point. That's a good point. It's good to be conspiratorial to an extent. Did we? I've just seen the question. I didn't pop that up. Is that, did we, have we answered that? A nexus. Does Jim have an opinion on whether or not alien craft, uh, an, an alien craft under the plateau? Well, I hate to say I don't have opinion on that. I don't feel that I'm educated enough about Skinwalker Ranch to, to give an opinion on that. We'd have to go there. <laughs> next next time, <laughs> Jim and Andrew's trip to Skinwalker Ranch. That would be, uh, yeah, that would get a lot of views on YouTube, especially I since think, you're on it. <laughs> I think, uh, no, especially because you're on it, you know. I haven't, I mean, we spoke about my exorcist guy, didn't we? That was what that was. And I don't yes. believe in exorcism. But I think mm -hmm. even people who do believe in exorcism don't believe this particular guy because he was just, um, he was clearly just trying to fool people and, and that kind of thing. And, and that's the tough thing because I, I 
really believe um, you were talking about psychics earlier. I, I tend to believe some people have psychic gifts. I also believe there's charlatans out there. So that's yeah. the I'm you know, to some extent, any endeavor, human endeavor is tough because it's a thing where, you know, there's good car mechanics. There's bad mark, uh, car mechanics. I was talking to a psychic one time and he did make the point. Yeah, there, there's there's good radio and podcast personalities and there's not so good ones. So I, I think that those people are out there that try to take advantage of people. And I think that's a real shame. Uh, and they should be ashamed of themselves. I I personally believe that there are people with psychic abilities. I personally have the psychic ability of a board. So, <laughs> so of, of a, board. a board. What does that mean? <laughs> that means none. Oh, right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, a plank. Uh, yeah. I have no psychic abilities, nor do I, do I, you know, purport as such. And that's something I'm very careful on the show. You know, I've had people say, you know, well, um, this has happened to me and that's happened to me. What should I do? And it's like, I don't know. I just ask the questions. I mean, I, I, you know, if there's somebody who I think is reputable, I could point them in the direction of, I'm glad to do it. But, but um, again, uh, I, I just like everybody else. I just want to try to find some answers. They're hard to find. I don't know if I ever will. I, when I first started Andrew, I thought six months, I'll have this all figured out. Not so much. <laughs> It's so hard. I mean, it, look, nothing worth knowing can be figured out in six that's months. Right. I suppose that's the, the thing to figure out, isn't it? I guess it's. I get the same thing. I mean, my my channel is more about um, cults and things like that, so Scientology and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I get the same thing of people emailing, like, you know, I've just left this cult. What shall I do? And I've got all this, and I'm like, I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just the and journalist. I I'm just. All, I wish I yeah. could give people the answer. I mean, I feel badly. It's and I've never presented myself that way. And I'm not, for example, I'm not paranormal investigator. It's not because I'm lazy. It's because, honestly, I think when you're doing this kind of thing, it's good to keep at arm's length. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Mm -hmm. uh, I compare it to if you watch sports broadcasts here in the States, a lot of our American football players, and I'm sure it's for real football over in the UK, it's the same. A lot of the the commentators have become for, their former players. Yes. But I think in a way, that's good in a way. It's good to get their perspective, but it's also good to have the guy who never played because you get kind of an outside perspective. And that's kind of the way that I look at it. I'm not psychic. I'm not an investigator. I'm somebody like you. I'm from the outside trying to understand this stuff and bring you along you're, in that journey. You're the proxy through which we delve into the paranormal. One of them. One what, of them. what did you say? I said one oh, of I, them, <laughs> not the only one. Of one. <laughs> one of the coolest ones. So tell me, um, what is, what? I mean, do you have, do you have, a scariest or most exciting or, or dangerous experience that you've encountered in your life? I've not uh, had a scary experience. I've had strange experiences, but they're more subtle. Can I quickly tell you my favorite campfire story we've ever gotten? Because I think it's way more exciting. Yeah, please do. Go okay. on. This is called the Roadhouse Saloon. Believe it or not, and I'll get try to get it within our time window here. This was our caller TI in the American state of... Um, she was in Wisconsin at the time. She was going with a friend to see a band at a bar. They stayed until about two o'clock in the morning is when American bars traditionally close. So anyway, she's going back. It's about an hour to a camp she's staying at with her family. And um, she gets halfway there. It's about an hour drive, rural area, totally dark. 
And her friend Bob is driving and says, Bob, I've got to use the restroom. And Bob says, well, there's not much here. You could pull up a bush if you want to and use that. And she said, no, 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 no. I will just uh, go ahead and uh, and drive fast. So anyway, a few months later, they come upon this saloon, this bar that's wide open, which is like against the law over here, usually after two o'clock. Lights are on, cars are in, neon sign, joints jumping. I thought, well, this makes no sense, but let's go in anyway. So they go in. He gets a drink from the bar. She goes to the restroom and comes back. Uh, Bob says, I'm so glad we came here because you see that big old West mural with cowboys and so forth on it. I've always wanted to see this and I've heard about it. And uh, they were talking and they're looking at, they notice every person depicted in that painting is in the bar. Uh, there's uh, some guys uh, playing cards in the uh, in the mural. They're sitting over there. They're playing on a pool table, so forth and so on. Uh. So it was kind of weird. And then they have this old-time Wolitzer bubbler jukebox that had real records on it, which was pretty uncommon at that time when the story happened. And some guy puts on Chubby Checker's Let's Twist Again. Comes over, asks T.I. to dance. He smiles. His teeth are rotten. And T.I. says, no, thank you. I don't want to dance. And holds up a cane because she uses a cane. She said she's glad she had that. That comes back into the story in a minute. So anyway, they keep sitting there. The people are weird. They're kind of smiling. And, you know, there's a big strapping guy behind the bar, attending uh, bar. So anyway, they, they keep talking kind of weirded out by this place a little. And they notice in the mural, they didn't notice before, there's the swinging doors like you see in American Westerns. And they didn't notice this before, but there were two misty columns in the doorway. They talk a little more, they talk a little more. They look back, further developed are these two misty columns, one shorter, one's taller. They talk some more, talk some more, look back, and they've, like an old-time Polaroid picture I've turned into the picture almost of two people, a man and a woman. They look more closely. The woman has uh, boots. T.I. has boots. The woman has curly hair. T.I. has curly hair. And the woman has a cane. And T.I. has a cane. And the significantly taller man looks like Bob. So at that point, they decide something very strange is happening here. We are leaving. So they said they got out, they started to leave, and these people quietly, they didn't say anything, but they kind of smiled and waved them, tried to wave them back. They said, no, we're not coming back. They closed the door. Everything went pitch black. When they look out to the parking lot, they're not cars. There's one car, their car, and the place looks totally closed. So they, they get out, and that's kind of weird. That's, that's very weird, but it gets weirder, Andrew. A couple of days later, she comes back um, with her sister, I think. And it's about 8 o'clock at night. She doesn't wait till 2 o'clock in the morning. She goes in. There's a young lady tending bar. There is the mural there, the same mural. No misty figures in the doorway. Talks to a young lady, says, oh, I was here the other night. You know, there was that big, good-looking, young, strapping bartender. And she's like, wait a minute. I'm the only one that tends bar here other than my elderly father. And then T.I. thought, oh, wow. She said, well, let me go check out the jukebox. Jukebox was not one of those fancy Wurlitzer jukeboxes. It was a modern jukebox with CDs. And with that, T.I. said, I've had enough. I'm leaving. 
And the funny thing is, Andrew, the place really exists. I have pictures. I have an author that's been on my shows who went there and took pictures and sent them to me. And it really does exist. It was open pre-pandemic. I don't know if it's still opened, but it's in Wisconsin, the Roadhouse Saloon. The place really exists. So that's my favorite campfire story. It's out there, I know. And I've met her in person, (laughs) met her in person. She seems very believable. You had us engrossed, Jim. What a, a brilliant story, beautifully told. We're running low on time. You've timed it per- to perfection as well. Quickly tell us where people can go and get your stuff. JimHerald.com, J-I-M-H-A-R-O-L-D.com, just like it says there. And then you can find the shows on the popular podcast app. Just search for my name. And thank you so much, Andrew. A pleasure to be part of the show. Oh, pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Jim. What a, what, a, what a pleasure that was. That was brilliant. Oh, I loved talking to Jim there. That was great. You, you didn't catch that story because you're probably eating your veggie sausages again, weren't you? I watched most of it. He's absolutely fascinating. He's such a great speaker. It oozes charisma. Mm, mm, what people say that about a certain Sean Atwood as well, don't they? <laughs> and you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, I'm leaving you to it and I'll see All you right. in half an hour. Cheers. Jay, it's been too long, brother. How's it going, man? Hey, what's up? No, it's, it has been too long. I'm so glad to be back. I love your show. Oh, love we love you and your work as well. And just to give the viewers a heads up on what we're going to be discussing, it's going to get deep. We're going into organized crime in U.S. history, connections to the Freemasons, organized crime and blackmail with Marilyn Monroe and the deep state connections, how many of the stars of that era were spies, RFK and JFK, Go after the mob who helped elect them, which is something that was talked about by Michael Francis when we had him on the channel. CIA and mafia involved. Uh, celebrity handlers are also relevant here. And there is a place where government and organized crime coexist. Often they don't want to get their hands dirty, so they contract mafia hitmen and then you know it gets traced back to them and the hitmen get wiped out and they can't get a link back to intelligence agencies. and that's how deep these things go jay is it possible to shuffle a little bit to the center of the screen yeah sure there we go oh fantastic all right jay i know you've been on the channel numerous times but for the viewers who are not familiar with you do you want to just tell them a little bit about you and your work first sure yeah uh jay dyer i cover a lot of uh things that relate to film, philosophy, theology, geopolitics, uh, a lot of absurdist humor, so, so-called comedy. Uh, and then, and now I'm putting out really bad music tracks that are kind of also a joke. So, so we do all the above. And uh, like you said, we go deep, we get really uh, heavy into a lot of the big fat geopolitical texts and, and I kind of make them bite-sized and boil them down for people. So that's what I do. Also host the fourth hour uh of uh he who cannot be named lord Voldemort for the last two years so uh that's that's what i do so on this channel then we've had various people come on and talk about you know rfk jfk assassination the mafia role cia role etc are you saying or has your research led you to believe there is a freemasonic role in this the freemasonic element in my view uh is just more so in terms of the origins of the sicilian mafia when we look back to where they came from and how they had a background uh kind of being um the local militia in in sicily going back several centuries uh and then there's a particular figure uh who comes to the fore under the italian revolution uh his name's garibaldi and he wanted to unite 
uh, uh, Italy in his day. And he was influenced by somebody known as one of the premier illuminists of his time, one of the most famous Freemasons, Giuseppe Mazzini, who's sort of the Albert Pike uh, of Europe of that time. And um, Garibaldi was very influenced by Mazzini and, and a lot of that Masonic philosophy. And I, th I think what happened there is that when the uh, what we think of to, uh, in terms of the 20th century as a Sicilian mafia, when they uh, organized their their blood oaths, they borrowed from some of these Masonic groups, such as the Carbonari, which was a secret society uh, in Italy. And they just sort of imported that into the structure of the mafia element of uh, a secret society. So in that regard, that's how it's Masonic, the blood oaths. Uh, there, there's a sort of even occultic element with, you know, the burning of the saint card and, and this kind of a thing. So known as the Omerta, I think, which everybody knows about. So that's how it's sort of quasi-Masonic um, and the structure is sort of quasi-Masonic. But um, in terms of Freemasonry proper, I, I don't necessarily think that, 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 that it's Freemasonic. My view is that it's a combination of interests in regard to JFK and RFK with uh, both uh, the mafia, the CIA, uh, and perhaps foreign uh, interests as well. That's absolutely fascinating, Jay. I had no idea when I was listening to Sammy the Bull tell his story of his initiation and Michael Francis tell his story, the burning of the saint. I had no idea they had co-opted that from the Freemasons. Yeah. Well, uh, now, the burning of the saint card itself might not be specifically uh, Masonic, but if you go into the history of Garibaldi and, and his uh, influence from Mazzini, that's totally, it's completely Freemasonic, free absolutely. So the blood oaths, the structure, the secrecy elements... Those are specifically the elements um, from uh, masonry. Um, the saint card itself, I'm not sure about. That might just be something kind of a, a sort of a local Italian Roman Catholic idea, where you're you know you're you're you're, you're taking an oath on the basis of your patron saint or something like that. But but yeah, I mean that's that's the historical origins of the Omerta. Yeah, and the Garibaldi story is definitely one of the most fascinating parts of Italian history. He had quite a movement going, didn't he? At one point, yeah. Yeah, and uh, what's funny is that a lot of the uh, early people that would be what would evolve into um, the mob, they were more like uh, militia. They were like a like lo local Italian um, local militia that would protect people from invaders. And then over time, they kind of evolved into being bosses because they had a lot of power. They had a lot of um, you know potentiality, therefore corruption. And so that's kind of what led to this sort of the dawn, uh, you know. Uh, 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 soldier foot soldier uh, structure there that they had was just this sort of natural development of, of local militia that that just had a potentiality for being corrupt and then a lot of those people ended up being the immigrants and that's how we get the early phases of the sicilian mafia in the u.s they are later reorganized by a jewish mafia to be their own kind of structure and, and to be another sort of parallel government within the government um, and in my view, that's how we get a model for how organized crime is a really good picture into the overall Great Reset New World Order uh, uh, crew, because the whole global uh, scammery is organized in a very similar way to parallel government. It's just not in a nation state. It's an international parallel government that's uh, you know behind a lot of things like the Great Reset. All right. Well, before we look at the co-conspirators in the JFK assassination from the interviews on this channel, then. We've looked at the factors that led to his demise and the factors that have arisen. I can just remember off the top of my head. So you've got the military-industrial complex. You've got Cuba. You've got attacks on the oil companies. You've got his father, you know, working with the mafia and then the whole family working with the mafia. And then 
yeah. you know, them turning against the mafia. Exactly. Would, would you say they're the main ones, or as there some that I've left out there? Yeah, I, I think the confluence of interest makes the most sense here. So there'd be a lot of people that the Kennedys had made enemies of, uh, you know, particularly the uh, overlooked character of, of Carlos Marcello, who is uh, sort of the, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., the the Sicilian mafia really begins in New Orleans. So a lot of people don't know this. You might think of New York or something like that. But um, it really it begins in New Orleans. And, and the head of the uh, the New Orleans crime syndicate is a guy named Carlos Marcello for many, many years and uh, connected with the Chicago outfit and uh, Sam Giancana or Momo. They, they had really helped to get the Kennedys into a lot of positions of power. In fact, uh, you may have heard of this recently. So people talk about the the machinery, <laughs> the election machinery, the, uh. the big machine in these big cities. Well, that's an old thing. It goes back not just to Tammany Hall, but also to you know Chicago. And um, so there was this idea that well, the Kennedys had kind of they kind of owed you know the the organized crime outfits that especially the Chicago outfit for helping to get them elected. And they probably resented uh, when they came to power some of that, uh, you know, blackmail, some of that uh, uh, debt that I, I think they probably owed to the to the mobsters. And so they, as you know, uh, went after a lot of the mobsters. And so JFK really puts RFK in this position to go after them, to prosecute them, to put them in the limelight. And this obviously made a lot of them mad. And one of those key figures was Carlos Marcelo, who rfk and jfk had uh, exiled so they sent him out of the u.s they they like kidnapped him flew him down to guatemala and just dropped him off <laughs> like you know, good, good luck have fun uh well needless to say this really pissed him off so he was not happy about that he snuck back into the u.s in one of his uh, shrimp boats which was a, a drug running boat that he had and when he got back he vowed uh, you know none of them kennedys are gonna make it i vow so he made a vow to to uh take him out and we know about all this partly because, oddly enough, uh, Hoover had uh, hundreds of hours of illegal wiretap information that he had done. And all, all this information was not admissible in court because it was gained in, in an illegal way. It still kind of spilled the beans about the, a lot of the mobsters and especially uh, Carlos Marcelo and, and Tra Santos Traficante, also very no notorious for his uh, CIA uh, connections as well as a florida uh, based gangster that they really had this motive right so the, the motive here is very clear with uh the the, the mobsters and this motivates it, it, the warren commission i think most people know is kind of a, a scam uh and a lot of this information was withheld from the, the warren commission so it comes out years later and that prompts the 1978 uh investigation into this new information that had been surfacing about carlos marcello and so he's kind of picked out as sort of the key figure in a lot of this and um this is right when uh, uh you had uh multiple uh, people that were going to testify show up dead <laughs> so uh, sam giancana ends up assassinated uh johnny uh Valachi, who was an informant who had flipped and, and turned on a lot of the people in the mafia he was going to testify he ends up assassinated um so, yeah, it, it, it would seem very clearly that there was the, the move to take out a lot of the people who could have potentially testified and spilled the beans and, and really given everybody a lot of clarity when it, can, when it comes to uh, the motivations for, uh, for that. But as you know, I'm sure there's also, in my view, you know, people in the CIA who had uh, a motive to get, to get rid of JFK and even foreign governments might have had uh, motivations to get rid of JFK as well. 
So what parallels did you see in the Oliver Stone movie about the JFK assassination? Well, it's interesting. That, that, so you have, uh, I think, a, what I understand to be an accurate picture of the figure of Hoover, because uh, you know Stone, Oliver Stone is very critical of of Hoover, and Hoover played this game where he would, you know, he had dirt on everybody too. He's basically acting just like a mobster. And there's that famous clip that's kind of been scrubbed from the internet. I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to find, but it's a famous clip of him, and I think in the fifties, saying there is no ma- there is no such thing as the mafia or organized crime. <laughs> It's like I've seen that, yeah. And so, uh, like, do people would you people wonder if the government lies? I mean, like, here's here's the guy <laughs> right from the face of the government. Yeah. They're telling you that there's no organized crime. Meanwhile, of course, he has dirt. He has uh, information, blackmail on everybody. Probably uh, the the Kennedys as well. And so, uh, when the Kennedys decide to go after the mafia, they order Hoover. You better go after. Uh, the mob in the same way that uh, you went after the communists. And so this motivates uh, Hoover to ironically take a lot of credit for people who prior to him had actually done the work. There was a guy named, I think, Harry Anslinger, and he had done a lot of the the work in terms of actually busting uh, narcotics rings, prostitution rings, et cetera. But of course, he uh, Hoover takes credit for all this when he didn't really do anything. And I, so I appreciate uh, Oliver Stone's portrayal of, of Hoover as this sort of uh, dubious uh, weird character who appears to have been blackmailed by the mob for his proclivities and so that might explain quite a bit of the you know hoover flip-flopping and and not really doing uh what he's supposed to do so um but i think that the overall general thesis of oliver stone's uh film is pretty much correct i mean it kind of gives us an insight into the confluence of the interests that were absolutely involved in my view how did the kennedy family get in with the mob in the first place was it during the bootlegging Correct. Yeah. So uh, if you take a, a there's a great if, there's a, if you go to the U.S. and you're in Hot Springs, um, Arkansas, of all places, uh, and you might remember Hot Springs because there's some famous there's some famous presidents like Bill Clinton. <laughs> you know, he comes out of that. He might have a few connections, too. I don't know. If you know about that. But so we this is a classic place that a lot of people in, in the U.S. don't know about. You think of the mob, you think of Vegas, right? You think of New York uh, or maybe Chicago. But um, the mobsters actually for many, many decades uh, would have their meetings and their retreats in Hot Springs, Arkansas. And Hot Springs was important because it was a key uh, area uh, for bootlegging, right? And it was a node in like the, the networks of where you would bootleg during Prohibition. And this is actually where Joe Kennedy Sr. got his start was working with Al Capone to do a lot of uh, bootlegging. And so, yeah, he, he had a long time, you know, longstanding connection uh, with with organized crime. But, you know, the funny part was that uh, Al Capone really wasn't that big of a deal. He wasn't the, the big, you know, he's famous, but he wasn't that powerful. He was just sort of a maybe a mid-level figure in terms of the Chicago uh, outfit. But his, uh, his successors, people like Sam Giancana, uh, Momo would be m- much more powerful. He was probably one of the most uh, powerful organized crime figures. And um, w- I- I- a lot of people don't know this either. I'll just throw this in real quick is that uh, one of the key figures from the UK, uh, it was uh, uh, Oni Madden, it was a famous British gangster who was actually also involved in helping to set up a lot of the US uh, uh, organized crime structure. He, w- he lived in Arkansas. He, w- he moved from the UK to Hot Springs, Arkansas. <laughs> and if you go and do the mafia tour, I highly recommend it because it's, it's highly instructive. Like it spills a lot of details, a lot of connections that a lot of people don't know about this, you know, amazing, weird kind of strange Southern city 
that was kind of an outpost for the mafia for, for many, many decades. And you, it, it's a place where you have hot springs baths. So basically a lot of, you know, fat gangsters can go in there and they get naked and you have your meeting. I'm not joking. You have your meeting nude with all your uh, fat gangster buddies because then you can't bring a gun in. <laughs> I mean, unless you've got you know a gun stashed up under your your fat rolls or your, your man boobs, you're not going to be able to shoot anybody in in the hot springs baths. So it's it's a famous thing. But anyway, yeah. So that that's uh, uh, multiple levels of connection there, and that's that's where uh, they were running a lot of the bootleg stuff was was out of hot springs. Joe and <laughs> Joe and Al Capone. I'm trying to figure out then how exactly this went wrong with the mafia. I know you've touched on it earlier. So I heard a theory that the father had a stroke. And kind of lost his control or his input over the sons and the sons then progressively went after the mafia and that was something that the father would have stopped is there anything in that uh interesting i'm not i'm not a, a familiar with that it's certainly possible um my, my guess would just be something more simple and maybe even it relates to the women because for example uh, marilyn monroe was was basically she was kind of uh, sleeping with everybody. Um, and I, if I recall, I think she was sleeping with Sam Giancana too. So she she slept with Momo. She slept with, uh, you know, Kennedy's famously. And so maybe there's an element there. I, she could have been a, a, a swallow. She could have been involved in blackmail operations as well. She was actually investigated by uh, the FBI because they suspected her of Soviet sympathies because she was uh, dating Arthur Miller, who was, I think, you know, suspected of liberal socialist uh sympathies as well and then uh, if i recall she has this she has a department of defense badge which allowed her access to places like uh you know laurel canyon studios and so you know we don't exactly know what her role might have been so there, there could definitely be this woman blackmail element so maybe there you know marilyn monroe is involved in um some of the dirt on the kennedys and maybe the mafia had this via momo or, or other people um, so that could be uh, one reason for the uh, things going sour. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know the specific details of why exactly they had the falling out with the mafia. There's also this whole element, too, with uh, uh, Traficante and Jimmy Hoffa, right? Because the, the, a big part of the mafia control related to the unions. And so Hoffa played this key role in being a, a, a go-between between between the organized crime figures and the control of the unions and that was useful for votes right so if, if you wanted to turn the the election machinery in a certain way you needed the union bosses and the people that control the union to do that and of course this is what led presumably to uh jimmy hoffa disappearing as well and um i think it's uh santos traficante famously said that the you know you'll never find jimmy hoffa's body and and presumably because maybe he had a role in that right and uh in in regard to the body this is also suggestive because carlos Mosello was famous for um basically dissolving bodies in acid and then dumping them in the bogs of new orleans so that might be another key as to why his body will never be found because there is no more no more body that's interesting because michael francis told us that his father was sleeping with marilyn monroe and the Kennedys found out, and they oh, put wow. him away for decades. His father got put away for decades. All right, so we've looked at the reasons. We've looked at the role of the mafia. What about the role of the CIA in all this then? Well, this is interesting because there's a, a famous CIA operative named Robert Mayhew, and Mayhew was pretty consistently this uh, go-between between, between uh, the CIA and organized crime. Um, now, before I, I get to him, it, it's it's important to point out the long-time history of the intelligence apparatchiks in the U.S. and in the West, 
having uh, very close relationships and, and, and even working together in many instances with organized crime networks and figures. For example, probably a lot of people have heard of Operation Underworld. This is the most famous publicly declassified thing about uh, the U.S. And, and the deep state basically working together with organized crime. Um, you can go back to the uh, World War II. And that's kind of where this is born out of this this deep relationship where you have uh, uh, deep connections with Meyer Lansky uh, and the intelligence apparatus, uh, Lucky Luciano and the intelligence apparatus, uh, Don Vito Genovese. Um, in the case of Luciano and, and Genovese, they were actually working with the Navy to feed uh, any possible intelligence, uh, you know, in, in regard to the Axis powers in Italy uh, uh, to the Navy that could be useful to them. And so. Um, there's many books on the, the long, uh, you know, connection between uh, the CIA uh, after that and uh, the and, uh, the and organized crime. And th this relates, I think, to a lot of drug lanes and networks. And so if you go into like, again, World War Two era, the OSS, which is the predecessor of the CIA, they took over a lot of the older British and French uh, control of black markets and, and uh, heroin lanes and networks. And so when the OSS sort of took that over, um, this naturally led to this uh, close wedded relationship because who's going to be running a lot of the, the drug lanes, drug networks, well, organized crime figures. Uh, and so that that's a natural connection and not just drugs, but also other black markets would have a direct connect. Uh, so organized crime, and the mafia is another, uh, it's a, it's a way to move uh, untraceable funds. It's another way that uh, intelligence agencies might use them there. As you mentioned, I think earlier, um, you can contract out uh, uh, killings, uh, assassination, so that the government doesn't look dirty. You've contracted this out to somebody uh, in organized crime. And this this is where the fig figures like Santos Traficante and um, uh, Robert Mayhew are important because uh, Mayhew, the CIA operative, we know he gave at least $140,000, $150,000 to Traficante for, for the specific purposes of assassinating uh, Castro. And under the... Uh, uh, jfk period and afterwards we know there was there was at least eight or so maybe even sometimes there's these rumors of like 50 different attempts to try to assassinate castro with exploding <laughs> cigars and all this crazy stuff but um when they had the 1978 uh in uh, hearings into the the relationship between uh the jfk assassination and the mafia this was actually brought up this was investigated but nobody could ever figure out what happened to this money that had gone to the that had gone to uh you know zero traffic on things like, yeah sure give me a give me a hundred fifty thousand dollars i'll take cash and then it probably goes right right into the you know betting <laughs> he probably went and <laughs> spent it right so um but that is suggestive because that that could lead to potentialities with regard to probably how something like JFK would have been involved. There would have been a confluence of interest. You, I, I could imagine, you know, people in the CIA who uh, JFK had made very mad uh, CIA directors at that time. I think Bush senior even uh, uh, had a role perhaps in this. And then we have people from the CIA coming out and saying, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, E Howard Hunt, right. Uh, even admitting that he played a role in this. And so due to this uh, intimate connection between the CIA and organized crime. Again, I think it just it just is pretty obvious and suggestive exactly how it went down or who was pulling the trigger. I don't know. But uh, readers or, or viewers might not know that uh, Oswald, for example, uh, did you know that he lived for an entire year with uh, Carlos Marcelo's bookie? And not only that, Carlos Marcelo and uh, Jack Ruby owned a strip club in Dallas. 
together. They were co-owners of a so, and of course, Ruby is who killed Oswald. So Jack Ruby, obviously being an organized crime figure, um, and these these really close connections with with Oswald. Although, by the way, all that was ignored by the Warren Commission. They, they weren't interested in any of that. So that to me suggests higher level squashing of that investigation and who would be involved in that, but you know, intelligence. I think it was in my book, America Made, about Barry Seal that we touched mm. on the theory that Barry Seal was a getaway pilot for the hit team. Oh, have wow. you have you looked at anything, found anything out about that? Uh, no, I have uh, uh, Daniel Hopsicker's books on uh, Barry Seal, Barry and the Boys and all that. And so I'm familiar with that overall story of Barry Seal, but no, I'd, I'd not heard of that. But it, I mean, it would make sense because Traffic Traficante is, is you know, that's Florida Mafia. And um, just another side point, too. Uh, there's a couple. There's a lesser-known serial killer who alleges to have been a hitman for Santos Traficante. So that's a direct connection between serial killers and uh, as as contracted uh, contract killers. Um, and so, you know, if Santos Traficante is directly working with Robert Mayhew and he's he's contracting out uh, hits for his enemies using famous serial killers. Um, then I wouldn't be surprised if, if there wasn't a direct connection between, you know, Barry Seal and, and organized crime as well. Jay, who has more power, the president or the CIA? I think that there was uh, periods when there was a struggle. I think this JFK period is precisely a struggle between the um, deep state and the president. And, and I think a lot of people go into maybe they even they get elected president. They don't know the power of behind the scenes machinery. And in my view, the CIA is really kind of like the private army of the wealthiest people on the planet. And so they were set up really to be a private uh, army for private elite banking interests. And so in my view, the CIA had more power. Uh, and, and a lot of people who might have not known that learned the hard way, <laughs> such as the Kennedys. I just want to ask the viewers what they think. So viewers, put in the chat a one if you think the CIA presently has more power than the president put in the chat too if you think the president has more power than the cia i just remember um, something there's a great documentary you would love this um i forget the name of it but it's 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 the william colby documentary who was the you know cold war era uh, vietnam era uh, cia director and there, there's a, a really important section in that documentary where they play clips from the CIA talking to the Kennedy brothers about Vietnam. And the, the most instructive clip is where the Kennedys are saying something like, ah, we don't want to do this operation. We don't want to do that. And then I think it's Henry Cabot Lodge representing the CIA says, uh, we don't give a shit. We're going to, you're going to do what we say. And they, they did what they did, what the CIA wanted in Vietnam. So I think that the Kennedys were sort of getting told what to do and, and they didn't really like that. And uh, th this comes up also in um, Oliver Stone's Nixon film, because Nixon has this run in with the, uh, the CIA as well. And he seems to have to learn this, this lesson also. Wow. Time flies with you, Jay. We've got a question here from Matthew Stiefels because we've only got about a couple of minutes left. Uh, does Jay have anything to say about Russian Marina Oswald? Was she involved in any way? 
Um, I'm not, no, I don't know much about this. I mean, I know that uh, people make a big deal of, you know, where, uh, Oswald was living, where he stayed and, and who he knew and who his roommates were and all this stuff. I mean, I think it is relevant that he's rooming with, you know, high level mobster bookies, but, um, I don't know enough. Of, I, I think the Soviet uh, element is just kind of cover, uh, for, in regard to Oswald. And celebrity handlers of so cia celebrity handlers how prevalent is that these days do you think well i just thought we, we might tie that in just because of what you know in the last year since i've talked to you we've had some pretty big revelations from you know Brittany and kanye uh you know two of the biggest stars in the world talking about the reality of celebrities being threatened to to be being taken to psych wards and being drugged into zombie land i mean that's something that we talked about on on my side of things for probably 15 12, 12 15 years and that was ridiculed as such a, a an outrageous, absurd, temple how conspiracy theory. Now we have the biggest star in the world, perhaps Kanye, um, openly saying this, and so I, I just kind of see it as a big vindication of lo- a lot of what we talked about. Regina wants to know if Woody Harrelson's dad was involved. In uh, well, he he claims that, yeah. So I mean, Woody Harrelson's dad was famously a hitman. And, you know, he's, he's claims to have been involved in the JFK assassination. And so that would be yet another organized crime tie-in. We've got two minutes left. If the viewers have got, want to squeeze any final questions in for Jay before we go, please, Jay, just remind the viewers where they can find you again on the socials. Yeah, you can look up my name, Jay Dyer, uh, here on YouTube. You can find me uh, my website, Jay's Analysis. I have an archived, uh, you know, backlog of, of countless lectures. Uh, on the, in regards to organized crime, I've done multiple uh, lectures through, you know, kind of big fat books, uh, Selwyn Rob's book, The History of the Five Families, and, and, and going deep into all that. So that's on YouTube. Uh, and then uh, you can find me uh, under my name on Twitter and Instagram and, and on Rockfin as well. What about James Files as the JFK shooter? That's from Utah. I'm not. I don't know who James Files is. I don't know that one either. Um, yeah, when it comes to the actual like on the ground analysis of you know like the bullet was doing this, and I, I don't know. I, I do like the Oliver Stone JFK film, and I've you know I've done a lot of interviews and talks and uh, events with Sean Stone. So uh, I'm a big fan of the of the Stones. I think they put out good material. Um, I would add too that I do have two two books, uh, Esoteric Hollywood one and two. <laughs> you get if you go to my website you can get those books uh, as well how insane is the magic bullet theory well that's uh, yeah i think that's crazy but <laughs> i just mean like there's all kinds of theories of exactly like you know who pulled the uh, trigger and uh, somebody somebody was sending me messages say it was actually one of the uh, secret security secret service people that killed them and I, you know there's a million theories on all that i just focus on like what can be proven and who has motives right i mean isn't that that's pretty telling. This is the final question now. What do you think of the last remaining document they won't release after 50 years? I was surprised when I think, wasn't it Trump pushing for this uh, to release all this information? Uh, uh, I think he was doing that as kind of a, a well, number one, publicity stunt, but also probably to damage the deep state. So uh, I, I hope that does come out. And I, I imagine that you're going to see a lot of this. If, if it has substantial information, I think it'll back up a lot of the theories that connect the organized crime and the CIA to this. Well, huge thank you for coming on, Jay. We're doing a Christmas special on December 21st. I think Ash is going to hit you up and see if you've got any time to come back on. But Absolutely, we'll always, yeah. we'll always love to hear from you. So well researched. It's, it's mind blowing. Cheers, my friend. Hey, thank you so much. And keep up the good work, Sean. Love your show. Thank you very much. Cheers, Jay. Bye. Later. Wow. That was heavy. That was hardcore. That was brilliant. 
Right, Andrew's back. So I am going hey, to a, a light from the street. Get out of here. He is gone, and I'm just about to bring Robert Law. Well, Robert from Law and Lumber on. Hi, Robert. How are you doing? Hey, Andrew. Nice to make your acquaintance. How are you? Very nice to make your acquaintance, good sir. I, I think I believe we have a mutual friend in Eric Hunley. He was excited to hear you were coming on this tonight. I think that's at least one of our mutuals. Yeah. Yeah, too many mutuals, too many mutuals <laughs> to speak. So we're going to be talking today a little bit about a couple of things, and one of which is uh, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp. Um, I I think people have just sort of lost track of this because there's so many sort of toing and throwing. So wh where are we with, with it all? All right, so what we've got is we've got basically judgments were entered in the court in Virginia. We're talking about the U.S. case here. We've got a judgment in the favor of Amber Heard, the amount of $2 million, and the judgment in the favor of Johnny Depp, the amount of $10 million, plus some punitive damages. Right now, both parties have filed an appeal. So the appeals are now pending, and they're both on different timelines and tracks moving forward. Um, Johnny Depp listed essentially one issue as an assignment of error, and Amber Heard listed 14 issues as assignments of error in her particular case. So it's a lengthy process and it can be kind of confusing to keep along with. Does part of you feel like this is a way for them to stay in the spotlight? Celebrities quite like that. I mean, yes and no. My, my, my gut feeling was we knew that Amber Heard was going to appeal, period. Uh, I, wouldn't, I didn't expect her to file 14 assignments of error, <laughs> but I knew that she was going to appeal. And I think that Johnny Depp was holding off on his appeal until she appealed. I think she was okay. he was waiting to see if she was going to pull that trigger. And once she saw that he did, or once he saw that she did, that's when he noted his appeal. So who owes who money now? Well, they both owe each other money. And that's something that a lot of people were very confused with. Uh, you had a $10 million judgment, $5 million in punitive that was modified by statute down to 350000 So Amber Heard owes Johnny Depp $10,350,000. Johnny Depp owes Amber Heard $2 million. Everyone's saying, well, why don't you just do the math and subtract them out? Well, they're, they're independent judgments. They accrue interest at independent rates. They are essentially an independent piece of paper that says, you owe me money, I owe you money. Do they have that kind of money either of both? Well, maybe they do. I think Depp can, I mean, Depp can pay his judgment. That's $2 million. It's This is Johnny Depp we're talking about. I don't think Amber Heard has $10 million. Not to mention, I don't, I don't know that her acting career has really taken much of a. Uh, yeah, it hasn't really gone very far since the uh, since the trial. Hmm. What happens if she is unable to pay? Uh, if she's unable to pay, then Johnny begins collection efforts, and that's kind of what happens in both cases. They can garnish wages, they can go after movie royalties, they can go after assets and try to sell different assets. Um, right now, Amber's involved in a a collateral. Uh, litigation right now with her insurance provider. The insurance provider provided the attorney's fees and costs for her to fund this litigation. And they're now suing her to try and get some of that money back. And she's dodging that one. She she is in all sorts of litigation fund right now. Wow. But also, like I said, I, 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 guess, I guess she wouldn't want this, but it, 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 she's now more famous than she ever was. I mean, I, I knew the name Amber Heard, and I think I could have maybe pointed her out before. But now everyone does is it is there any benefit to this whole thing for her i don't i don't know i don't know <laughs> would you rather be famous or infamous or both I, some I don't people are happy know. with infamous aren't they it's yeah she's 
we'll see where she goes from here. I think one of the things that she needs to focus on doing is getting her face out of the spotlight, at least in the context of this litigation. Hmm. What are your thoughts about the media reporting on the whole, on the Depp appeal at the moment? There was a lot of uh, misreporting on it. Uh, I know that newspapers were reporting, and I did a brief search on this before jumping on with you today. Well, I guess evening your time. Um, just to see what it was going on and what is being reported as in the UK. And so many people were looking at the brief that he filed and they were saying that was him noting his appeal and he's going after this judgment and they were calling him petty for doing so, et cetera. That is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how the appeals process worked. Mm -hmm. Both of them noted their appeals. Their appeals were pending 30 days after the judgment was entered in July. So they both appealed. The briefs are the explanation of why I think I'm right to appeal. And the fact that the media was going out there reporting all of this as Johnny being Johnny Depp being uh, just a nasty person going after money, it was just really bad misunderstanding. And I, I would like to think it wasn't intentional. I have my doubts, but hmm. yeah. We, I, I did feel like I, I feel like there has been a slight change because it, it did feel like everybody was team Johnny uh, about six months ago. Uh, and I've started to just see little bits and pieces of, you know, some hidden audio of, of Johnny Depp being aggressive. And, you know, and you can say, oh, well, she made in that way. And but nobody's ever made me get a knife and start like threatening to use it on myself and on her and whoever else. And all these kinds of what, why, why do we have trouble with just saying they're both, you know, lunatics? Oh, I have no problem with that. I, I, <laughs> I think that the, the big problem you have is people just want domestic incidents and incidents like this are very hard to explain try mm -hmm. to dive into a family and explain the inner dynamics of a family in a particular moment people are abusive to one another in various ways emotionally psychologically physically they're never acceptable but when one person goes out and publicizes the other person's conduct as being something way more than what it was I think that's where Amber Heard kind of started crossing into a line. Um, and we'll see. I mean, the evidence for both of them, Amber Heard didn't do herself any favors by testifying or by raising the issues that she did. I'll kind of leave it at that. Yeah, I guess. I mean, look, she she accused him of of uh, what's what's the word for it? D domestic abuse, was it? What did she say? Mm -hmm. She accused him of domestic violence and domestic abuse. And it wasn't just that. Was it was She redefined what those terms meant. When she said, when she used the word domestic abuse, she could have kept it there and it would have included emotional, psychological, verbal. But when she went onto the stand and described what she meant by the domestic abuse, where you've got allegations of, and I know that we're on YouTube, we're going to be careful here, but taking a, uh, a bottle and using it for an inappropriate purpose that is depicted in the scene in a movie Gone Girl. Mm -hmm. um, when you start defining that as being your definition of abuse, and then when you also don't have, not just that you don't have facts to back that up, but when every single fact cuts against your argument. So it's not just that you have to prove your case. It's that everything is disproving your case. That was what yeah. it came down to with her. I think she went 
uh, back back and forward quite a lot, didn't she? And didn't really stick to one line, which is what a big reason about you know a big reason for why people don't really trust her. And is is that part of the substance of Depp's um, appeal? Uh, not his. It sounds like his allure, his appeal, but his uh, appeal in the law case. No, the appeal itself is actually based on a one statement that was made by his attorney. So his mm-hmm. attorney went out and made statements that Amber Heard had fabricated uh, evidence to basically make this story up. And those statements made by his attorney were actually attributed to him. And the implications of that are really pretty interesting. Um, it made a lot of attorneys very uncomfortable. And it should. Because the idea that I would be representing a client and then me in my own world, in my own capacity, goes out and makes a statement that could be a factual assertion all of a sudden now my client is the one who's on the hook for the words that I am saying out of my mouth. There is, there is, I mean, attorneys are paid advocates. So we are paid advocates. We are advocates that, that are, are actually responsible for doing that. But we also have rights of our own. We can go out and give an opinion on a case. We can give an opinion on facts. We can make mm-hmm. these statements and they shouldn't be tied back to our client. Interesting. It is. It's so messy and crazy. And then what's what's next in the appeals process then? Uh, as of right now, we've got Johnny Depp's opening brief uh, that has been filed. Amber Heard gets to file a response that has to come within 30 days of his opening brief, which I believe was the 15th. Um, so his or I believe his opening brief was a couple of weeks ago. So uh, another couple of weeks for her response. Then he gets to reply to that. Amber Heard asked for an extension of her appeal. Uh, for her opening brief, that's due next week on the 23rd. Um, and then Johnny Depp will have 30 days to file a response to that. Uh, he's going to ask for an extension because there's, she, like I said, she she raised 14 different issues to try and assert error. Yeah. And did she write on any of them? Mm, no. I mean, there's there's only one issue that I think that is kind of the curious one for me, which is, whether this defamation by implication is going to to carry water. Um, now, it's pretty well-founded in Virginia. The last case that we had on defamation by implication, I believe, was 2015, 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but the law is not in her favor on that. I would say that 90% of the issues that she raised on appeal are, I mean, they, they go nowhere. They might make her feel good to say the trial court got wrong. I just cannot see an appellate court overturning it. Um, just not a whole lot of merit there. Hmm. And what? And what? What's? I mean, what are some of her weakest ones? Do you, Do you have them to mind? Uh, the weakest one that I can think of was she tried to make this argument throughout the entire trial proceeding that the judgment that was obtained by the son in the UK proceeding, where Johnny Depp sued the son in the UK, that that should have been presented to the jury, and that hmm. the judge prohibiting that from being presented to the jury was somehow. Um, a fatal flaw to her case or a fatal flaw to the case as a whole. And that just, that rested on a really impermissible misunderstanding of law. The judge was fully briefed all the way through the UK issue and the UK trial was Johnny Depp suing the son and Amber Heard in that case was a witness. The son only had to prove that they were justified in their belief that what they were printing was true. That is not the Mm -hmm. same as the individual that is in the room while it's happening making the statement themselves and it's completely excluded and it's properly excluded because there's nothing more prejudicial than to a jury than to suggest that they don't have a job to do in that courtroom 
to basically say, hey, don't worry. Some other judge decided this for you. Don't you don't have to look at the evidence that, that I'm showing you. Right. All right. And, and what where do you see this going then? Is it to, to us, I, us lay people, it just feels like, oh, God, it's interminable. It's just going to bounce back and forward forever. Is there an end in sight? And, and, and who does it look bad for? I don't know. Do you have binoculars? Like how far can you see out into the future? Because that's where this is going. It's going to be like this for a while. Um, the timelines we're talking about are 30, 40 days to file documents. We're not going to get an oral argument in the Court of Appeals until I'm guessing mid-spring, late mm. spring. And then after that, she can ask the Supreme Court of Virginia to take it up. The Supreme Court of Virginia doesn't have to take it up, but depending on how the Court of Appeals resolves itself, We'll see what she decides to do. Yeah. Any hope they'll get back together? Oh, my word. <laughs> if he, if, if those two get back together, oh. Wouldn't that be great, though? It's like they've taken us all for a ride. They've just let us feast on them for years and years and take sides, and then they're just like, we're back together. Oh, you're talking to a domestic relations attorney here. <laughs> I can't even. I imagine, imagine it doesn't. It, it doesn't happen no, often. That kind. No, that, no, it doesn't happen often. And when it does, like as an attorney, you look at your client. And you're going. I understand why you want to remarry this person. I do. I know that your heart is telling you that. I'm just telling you that I walked you through that entire divorce. Do you really want to do that again? I mean, would you say that to a client? Yeah, probably. I would say, look, it's your choice. But we've been down this road before. Here's everything that we did. Do you really want to do it again? <laughs> Bloody hell. Well, you know, I wish them separately um, satisfaction, I suppose, uh, like in a duel or something. I, I hope we'll they are see. both satisfied to an extent uh, at the end of this. We're going to move on to um, Daryl Brooks. Now, tell us just in case people haven't uh, been, been following. It was last year. The uh, How do you pronounce the, the name of this place and the parade mode? Waukesha. Waukesha, Wisconsin. Waukesha. Mm, so tell us a, a little. Oh, oh, yeah, this 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 case is uh this one's gonna mess with the the patience level that I've got here. So there was a Christmas parade that took place in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and I don't know if your audience remembers seeing media reporting on this because the media ran out with this headline of "Red SUV mows through or plows through parade." They left mm -hmm. out the fact that someone was driving the SUV. Well, the person who was driving the SUV was named Daryl Brooks. And the driving through that parade resulted in six deaths, one of which was a child, and uh, dozens injured. I mean, he, he quite literally drove over humans like they were speed bumps, stopping at one point in time, reaching out of the window and pulling a person off of the hood of the car. Hmm. Well, he went to trial on this in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, and the week before his trial, he fired his attorneys. And he decided he was going to proceed pro se or pro per. Um, basically, I want to represent myself or in Daryl Brooks's case, he tried to make the argument of uh, me, Daryl Brooks, not the defendant Daryl Brooks, as I am representing Daryl Brooks in a representative capacity. But no, I'm not here and I don't subject myself to jurisdiction. I can see your eyes flicking around and I'm going, yes, it makes just as much sense as you're processing in your head, which is to say none. Okay. It reminds me of that. Uh, there was a Family Guy episode where Peter had his own country. He decided yes, it would be called Pitoria. Like Peterland. Pitoria. Pitoria. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Is that what he's doing? Kind of. Um, 
it's a bunch of this in the States, we call it sovereign citizen where they're soft sets. Mm -hmm. They basically, they, they don't acknowledge that there is any authority over them by the state. He kept on saying throughout the entire trial, you know, uh, are you aware of the plaintiff in this matter? Do you know the plaintiff? Have you seen the complaint in this matter? Well, the plaintiff is the state of Wisconsin, which is, I mean, it's a sovereign. It is, it is the embodiment of the people that live in Wisconsin. So no, the state doesn't physically walk in the door, but it does through its, through its agents and representatives, the prosecutors in the case. It was one of the most wild trials I think I've ever seen. And the judge has exhibited more patience in that trial than I could have ever imagined. Wow. I guess they don't have much choice. I mean, the judge can't just like get up and hit him, can they? Oh, no. she. It, I was shocked. The bailiff that was sitting behind him while he was going through his antics, I was surprised that he didn't get up and wallop him a couple of different times. I mean, yeah. this is a guy who was cross-examining the people that he ran over. He was, he was permitted to do that. So they oh were up God. on the witness stand, and he was the one representing himself, asking them questions. Um, he would ask them, well, wow. he asked one of them said well you can walk fine now it, just just things that came out of his mouth that you would never ever 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 imagine coming out of a person's mouth in the courtroom what how has this been allowed i suppose it's a legal loophole of sorts it's not even a, it's not a loophole so in the states we have the confrontation clause which basically is a part of our constitution you are allowed to confront your accuser you're allowed to put on your defense so you are both you are allowed to put on your own defense and you're entitled to representation and you're allowed to represent yourself in cases where you are the person accused and you're allowed to confront your accuser. So when you combine those two facts, mm -hmm. you have this absolute right to basically examine the evidence and present that in front of the jury because your life is the one that's on the line. A lot of people were saying, why is he allowed to further victimize these people? And it's, it's a difficult answer to give uh, because it requires kind of a little bit of balancing here. You're basically saying that the state has the power to deprive you of life and liberty for the rest of that lifetime. They have the burden to prove this case. You, because the state is asking and trying to deprive this from you, you have the absolute right to cross-examine these people. The, the, the trauma that you might inflict on them um, in that cross-examination is Yes, it's significant. It's something we can mitigate, but it doesn't trump this person's right to not have their life deprived of them without the right to have the evidence presented. Hmm. Well, I, I guess it's, I heard someone saying recently, uh, I think it was Robert Barnes on this on this channel was saying, uh, you know, we need to really make sure that, the, that, that even the worst people, he said it's even more Correct. important that the worst people have, to, have a fair trial and the right to defend themselves. Although what he's doing really is just riling people up isn't it he's just going to get an even longer center but but he probably knows doesn't he that this is his last bit of acting you know oh, his this, last bit of funk he's going away isn't he this is his last bit of acting and i couldn't agree with more with barnes on that particular topic because the thing is bad facts make bad law you cannot make the law based on the worst possible circumstances that could ever exist if you do that you're going to get bad results if you don't uphold this right for the worst of the people in the world it's not long until they get to you it really is. Um, now, in this particular case, in his antics, yes, it's his last hurrah. Honestly, before I jumped on, right up until the very 10 seconds before you had me on the show, I was listening to his his final um, statement in the sentencing part of his trial. He was convicted of all charges, all 76 counts he was convicted wow. of. 
And the Good. sentencing is taking place over yesterday and today. Yesterday was the victim impact statement, some of the hardest stuff I've ever watched in a courtroom. Um, 19 victims that get to give up, get up and give their statement and what they want of this judge as far as sentencing. And then today has been his version of the case or his request for sentencing, which boiling it down basically says it's society's fault that I ran over all of these people. I am going to not really apologize, but I'm, I am good with me. Uh, and then he went off on a tangent attacking the DA for a while. Um, it's not going to matter so much as far as sentencing is concerned because he's the, the charge with which he was convicted, the six murders, the six people that died, those each carry a mandatory minimum of a lifetime. So he's already got six consecutive lifetimes. I think mm -hmm. he's facing upwards of, I think, 900 years. So huh. bloody hell. I think he was, I gather he was involved in, I mean, he, he hated white people. There was some evidence about that and, and evidence also that, and Sean doesn't like me saying it on the show, but, you know, people with, with my, my own ethnicity, which you might gather from my surname, uh, he was also, he had a problem, you know, like Kanye West and like um, um, Dave, Dave Chappelle recently. It's a worrying um, trend. I would say his behavior, there was a lot of stuff that existed prior to trial that would suggest how he viewed certain races and classes. But I, my focus throughout this entire thing has kind of been on his antics and his, his complete disdain for the, the system, disdain and disrespect for anyone in a governmental or authoritative position. And honestly, the victim shaming and the victim, uh, you run over someone with a car, you don't look at them and say, why didn't you get out of the way? Is he potentially, are we looking at a psychopath, do you think? I know that doctor, you've had uh, Dr. Das on, right? I believe you Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shaham. The ominous Shahomanus. Shaham. Shaham. He has, uh, he gave, he, he, we've talked about this case a little bit. I'm not in the, I'm not a licensed professional. I'm not going to diagnose anybody. Hmm. There's, there are some screws loose. Um, I would say that Dr. Dr. Das is probably a better position to give that diagnosis, but I, I would say that there are issues with his mental health. They are not the kinds of issues that are going to result in his being set free or result in him being confined in a mental institution. He is fit to serve his time in jail and in prison, and I imagine that's where he's going as of the close of business today. Do we know enough about sort of, I mean, he said society, it's all society's fault on this kind of thing. I mean, it is perfectly possible that he did have a rough time of it. Do we know much about his, not that that would ever excuse his he acts, did. but I'm interested. I mean, he, yeah, he, he did. He didn't have a great upbringing. The problem, the problem is, is that he didn't have a great upbringing, but everyone made excuses for him at every single step of the way. He was, oh. he received nine, I mean, the nth degree of, uh, second chances he was out on bail multiple times thousand dollar bail cash bail he jumped bond basically when you when you don't return back to court after you've been released prior to your trial date he just refused to show up several different times he continued engaging in all of this criminal behavior at some point in time yes there's mental health issues but at, at a certain point you've got to take responsibility for your own actions agency kicks in and you've got to be held accountable yes we can talk about the mental health issue but it's not going to prevent him from going away to prison for a very, 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 very long time. At the beginning, you, you mentioned um, that the media reported it as a car uh, carrying out these uh, murders by, you know, uh, 
what what do you th- what do you think that what what's driving that uh, failure to say that it was a, a person or a man or or whatever else? Honestly, you had you had the district attorney in this particular case. Um, I don't want to screw this one up. Basically, the state the state district attorney had and the state legislature had gone down this path of let's get away with cash bail. Now, a lot of people mm-hmm. don't understand what cash bail actually is. And this is this is something that I think one side of the coin has failed in their narrative. When someone is accused of a crime and they are charged with that crime, they appear in front of a judge after having been arrested. And the presumption is that they get held over, they get held incarcerated until their trial comes. Well, the law allows for people to say it is too harmful to me to for you to keep me detained for this period of time all the way up until my trial date. There are people that depend on me. I'm, a, I'm an asset to the community, all these other things, right? So that's where bail comes in. Hmm. Well, as part of a lot of state structure, cash was a part of that bail. It was viewed as a way for the court to basically put some type of burden on you that would guarantee you were going to show up. Give it more than just my promise. Well, that became uh, the narrative was that that was discriminatory against a certain class of citizens. So Mm -hmm. they started eliminating it for different charges and crimes. If you showed up having, for example, stolen a car and the judge is sitting there looking at you and the judge is saying, I would really like to hold you over because I know if I release you right now, you're going to go and do something. So I'm going to charge you for $5,000. You have to come up with that money. If you can't afford it, then you have to be in jail for until your trial. Well, the state came in and said, judge, you can't do that. And they started elevating the crimes for which the judge was prohibited for asking for that cash bail. This was a particular case where you had a lot of slack DAs letting him off the hook, judges that weren't holding him accountable when he did jump bail. And it was a, a failure in the system. So when the media got this narrative, when they found out who he was, they didn't want to take egg on the face because they've been sitting there promoting and advocating for this uh, revised system for all of 2020, the summer of love. And this is the, you just had a lot of that, that being pushed at that point in time. So when this hits the newspaper, the last thing they want to do is say, Oh my gosh, this is the consequence of our decision. Blame it on the car. I suppose that is a fallout, you know, an issue, but I can sort of see the other side as well. You don't want a two-tier system where the law treats people differently depending on who can afford bail and things like that. Yep. And it, it's, I can tell you that the system's not going to be perfect, uh, but the pendulum tends to swing from one end of the equation all the way to the other when the reasonable people are right around in here. Yeah. So it's... That's something we we <laughs> see a lot. People don't seem to get nuance, especially a big organization like a country and a, a district attorneys and things like that. It just swings all the other the other the other way. So, will he he? So, what happened the last two days? Is it is it finished? Now, I'm using very lay terms because those are all I know. Is it finished and over? Now he goes to prison. Yeah. So today is the sentencing phase. So there's the adjudicatory phase, which is the guilt phase that gets determined by the jury. Then the jury is excused. And there's a whole different set of information that's presented to the judge that allows the judge to analyze factors and determine what sentence they're going to impose. Judge Doro is going to impose that sentence today. He will begin immediately serving that sentence. 
Um, and then he will have certain rights to appeal. These are things that he has mm -hmm. the right to appeal on certain issues. It doesn't mean that any one of them are going to succeed. In this particular case, I think the judge has been remarkably careful to not tread all over his rights. I think she has been overly careful more than I could have ever been um, given his antics. So I, I think he's just it's going to be a long time in a very cold, dark place and couldn't think of a better person to deserve it. Yeah, I, I believe so. Um, Rob, tell us where people can find you, where you want to send them to. Of course. Uh, channel is Law & Lumber. Uh, got into the YouTube thing not too long ago, probably around May of this year. So still kind of figuring it out. Do two weekly shows. Trials of the Century begins tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tonight we're talking about the inspiration to the, the movie The Fugitive, if, you, if you're familiar with that film. Uh, the Trial I, of Sam yeah. Shepard. Yeah, years ago. Is it just Sam Shepard? Is not another famous person in that? Sam Shepard is the was the trial that resulted in that particular film. But every single week on Wednesday, we break down one of these old historic trials and talk about how the process went, et cetera. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, well, uh, well, yeah, it does sound fun. And it's a great, this looks like a great channel. 180,000 subscribers just in a few months. You must be incredibly good at what you do. One of the top law tubers. So everybody, please do go check out Rob's channel. Uh, and Rob, thank you so much for coming on and so beautifully explaining everything. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hope to talk soon. Talk soon. What a pleasure that was. Hello, Shawno. Can't hear you, mate. You're on mute. And I, for one, hope it stays that way. <laughs> I almost choked on my toast when you asked him. It was Johnny Depp and Amber going to get back together. That was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, mate? Who Ooh. knows? I love. I love just thinking about it. When I'm asking questions, I'm also thinking, "What's Sean eating right now?" And it was toast. <laughs> Thank you for staying with us for Atwood Unleashed eighty one part one. Part two is imminent on Patreon. We're going to have an ex-Metropolitan Police Officer. We're going to have a cult survivor. We're going to have a survivor who killed E, Maria Farmer. We love Maria Farmer. We've done lots of her over the years. And then we've got George Tonks, who's going to be talking about human transportation. All the unmentionables that we can't talk about on this channel are going to commence in Patreon in 10 minutes' time. Ash has put the link in the chat, but the link is also in the description box below this video. So huge thank you to everyone who's watched tonight. Huge thank you to Andrew. And hope to see some of you over on Patreon momentarily. Cheers, everyone. Take care out there. Bye-bye.